Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two fan favorites, recurring guests, J.D. Ross, co-founder of Open Door, now in between albums, as they say, and Sean Lenahan, former VP of product at Flexport and now founder CEO of Placement. Guys, welcome to the podcast. You know, Sean, you ended up go pursue Placement. Why don't you give a quick uh, background on what Placement is and how you came to create it? Out of all the ideas that you could have pursued out there in the world. Sure. So Placement is the talent agent for everybody, focused primarily on finding talent in undervalued places and relocating them to places where they're able to earn more money. So we try to find people who, if they were basically picked up out of their local economy and dropped in a different place, say from small town America to Austin, Texas, they would earn more money without reskilling. And we basically do this by looking at their skills and how much they currently earn, as well as the cost of living differential and the tax differential and help people move to, to places where there's greater opportunity. And, you know, the phrase that sort of really resonates with me is that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And so our whole goal is to move people to places where for the same exact work, they're just going to do better, right? The reason why we started to work on this was, you know, partly a personal experience as well as a sort of top-down hypothesis. The personal experience was that I grew up in a relatively low income or or working class neighborhood and experienced tremendous professional growth in terms of my earning power, as well as personal growth in terms of how much of a productive member of society I felt by moving from my hometown to the Bay Area. Partly, I went there for college and stuck around and and sort of did that train. But when I graduated college, I I took my best friend who had not gone to college. He was working low-end jobs, minimum wage jobs, and called him and said, hey, look, I got this bed open in my apartment. I had I was subletting this apartment that had bunk beds and and you know was like why not have my friend from home come and crash on my on my bunk beds and said you should come move up here it's way better up here uh you know where we're from is called San Bernardino it's kind of like a it's like a black hole right is it's not an awful place to be but you're not going to go anywhere so I tapped him and he, and he moved up to to the Bay Area and within three days he was earning thirty percent more and now five years later he's earning three x what he was earning before and that's on a cost of living adjusted basis this is a guy without a college degree. So what we're doing with placement is really trying to take that experience and scale it up, right? So, you know, in the, in this sort of past five, six years, since he did that, the cost of living in the Bay Area has gone up quite substantially. So we probably wouldn't you know, move somebody to San Francisco. Uh, but there's other places, emerging cities around the country or cities that have been around and are experiencing a growth spurt that are great places to move. Yeah. And so what's the key insight that makes this uh, business potentially something that's going to be big is that people are more likely to move than, than we think. They, they are. Is it the ISA portion? Like, what, what do you think? Sort of, why hasn't it been done before? Right. So to, to, to just touch on that piece, we are monetized using an income share agreement. So we're like a placement company or a recruiting company in that we help connect talent to jobs, but we don't monetize by charging placement fees to the employers. We monetize by charging an income share agreement to the candidates. The reason we do that is because we're working with entry-level talent that doesn't necessarily command the same level of attention uh, and fees that a placement company might earn from, say, a software engineer or designer. We're focused on entry-level business jobs, and we're also providing financial assistance to these folks to relocate to these new cities. So that's the the income-sharing piece. 
I don't think that the, the core insight is that income sharing has enabled this experience, though it has. It's one, one component. I think the, the key piece is really understanding that talent is already there. Like a lot of the uh, sort of top-down American story around labor is we have to reskill. And I know, JD, you have some opinions on this. We have to reskill everybody to be software engineers or they have to be the people making the software. And I just don't think that's the case. Also don't think it's the case that if all we do is just add engineering skills that all of a sudden people are going to you know, do economically better, you actually also have to be in a place where those skills are, are useful. Some might argue with me that the remote trend or the distributed teams trend might be a counter a countervailing force there. But really, the, the observation is just that people are already very, very talented. And just we don't have necessarily the most optimal distribution of, of skills around geographies. Yeah. JD, why, why don't you get into why you don't think people need to learn code in the same way that other people think? Well, I, I'm sure some people need to learn to code. I'm sure it's very helpful. I, I just don't think it's the it's sort, of, it's sort of like saying, uh, let's take everyone in the economy and put them in the top you know, 5% of earning power. And that's just like not true. It's not helpful. I think people underestimate how dynamic the economy of the US is. 40% of people change jobs every year. I think it's actually higher than that now. Um, many of those jobs never come back. So like when people talk about losing, you know, trucking over to autonomous vehicles, it's like, we won't because really, it's 2% of the US jobs. I, I just don't believe one, I don't think it's going to happen for a long time Two, I, the US can absorb that. No problem. We have a very dynamic economy. And what matters is like, how do you allocate people through that change and how well are they, you know, optimizing their earning potential or their ability to create value and capture that value. So what, what do those 2% do? Do they need to learn new skills or do they just get reallocated without. So, so I think you, you look at this in sort of tiers. One is uh, if you're talking about entry level talent, like what Sean's working with at placement, um, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of opportunity there where you can say, Hey, this person who was maybe a customer service agent in Georgia who could be an elementary school teacher or something else. I don't know what the, we're actually looking at the opposite migration path, you know, maybe potentially a public school teacher that decided to, to move to a new place. Maybe their license wasn't transferable, or maybe they, they just decided to, to get out of the public sector. Maybe they decide to become a customer success rep, yeah. which doesn't require technical skills, but it requires the right type of personality. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's empathy. Great. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Then there's sort of this middle tier, what I'll think of as like the trades, uh, which I think do require some level of reskilling, but I think the path there is probably more accessible. I'm really interested in pursuing stuff there. So think of... Um, there's huge shortages in all these jobs, right? Welding, HVAC, construction, trucking... Uh, nursing. Does it look like Lambda School for all these things? Or what, what are businesses that would be built on top of this? Yeah, I, I think you could do a Lambda School model, but I think for a lot of these things, the, the, the trade schools are there. You just don't have the ability to necessarily afford your life while doing it. And so how can you use things like ISAs or other financial instruments to make it possible for people who are today maybe under undervalued yeah. to gain those skills, regardless of whether you're the one creating the program or not? And then get those jobs. Uh, I'm looking at that closely. I'm, I'm a huge fan of how can you kind of better create economic mobility. Yeah. The other, the other big piece here is that most people just don't know about these opportunities. Even as somebody that spends my entire day learning about what jobs are available in which cities in America, almost every single day, I'm still called up by somebody new that says, Hey, did you know that there's a big shortage for additive manufacturing agents uh, in, you know, uh, Texas or in Southern California? And it's every single day I'm learning something new. Normal people have far less information than the placement team has. And so the way, one of the things that we are trying to do in terms of helping our, our, our customers is 
helping connect them with the opportunities that make the most sense for them and teaching them about opportunities that they didn't necessarily know existed at all. And one of the things, you know, this is a thing that is done with community colleges or with, or with universities, but the labor market, as JD said, is so dynamic that, you know, five, six years out of college, when you're looking for your second to your third job, everything's different. The story that you were told when you graduated is no longer the same, and there's no institution that's helping guide you to that next journey. Um, I have a friend and my coach, Matt Chari, who does a, who started a, non, a nonprofit, which takes ex people who are out of prison. So felons, ex-cons and trains them in commercial trucking, gets them placed. And then since there's such a shortage there, they take the referral fee from the trucking companies and use that to then train the next yeah. person. I, I think there's so many probably non and for-profit versions of this that you can create. Right. Let's, let's touch more on the economic mobility. Let's say if we were running a, a fund and we were putting out sort of a request for startups that were helping address economic mobility, uh, what ideas do you want to go see, uh, we want people to go pursue or think might, might be really impactful? Placement's a good one for starters. I think Lambda School for X is probably another one. Um, there's probably some, instead of going full stack on it, you can probably slice off different pieces of this, like the, Maybe you can wrap the schools and say, hey, we're going to do a model for pairing talent or yeah. potential talent with these given trades, and we're going to partner with various schools throughout the country yeah. or programs to make that happen. Um, so that's kind of the financial aspect of it and support that person financially until they yeah. until they do that because you know you can take them from making $45,000 a year to $80,000 a year. Right. Is any part of you interested in disrupting higher education or K through 12 directly and like alt school has tried with K through 12 or Minerva has tried with higher ed or is it all, is it via parallel things like Lambda or like placement or? Well, I think for starters, way fewer people should be going to private universities than there are today, which is obvious to anyone who looks at student debt statistics. If you're unable to pay that off, it means you're not getting a very good ROI on it. K through 12 is much harder. Uh, I think Bill Gates or someone like him had said like, you know, I spent nine years doing this. It's a bottomless pit. Don't even bother. Um, and so I'm not smart enough to have an opinion on what's required there. Yeah. Higher education is interesting because we, we've sort of taken an institution that was meant for, you know, the pursuit of just abstract intellectualism, right? Yeah. Like the actual classic academia was just literally the pursuit of knowledge. And then you had this other branch of it, which was liberal arts, which is really about how do you turn, you know, a relatively affluent person into a member of high society, right? And there was these two functions that academia and higher institutions traditionally traditionally served. I mean, it's not ex exclusively that. There, you know, it's it's much more nuanced than that. But you know, there's also then we basically have taken this institution and said, hey, look, it's it's relatively predictive of job performance, and people that go through it tend to be higher earners. Unsurprising, given that you know the, the prior two use cases, um, they tend to be people from wealthy families that go to college in the first place. And we've said, well, this seems to work, so let's just put every single person through it. But we didn't redesign the university experience around becoming a mass consumer experience, right? We still kept a lot of the becoming a sort of sophisticated person, part of high society aspects of it, right? Like I learned about all types of random things that I don't feel was productive for my career in college. It made me feel good. But in terms of taking you know low-income people like myself and putting them into debt to learn about things like California's trees... Yeah. feels excessive. Right. And if we are looking at how do we take or how do we have the highest outcomes per dollar spent, you know, the well-rounded aspect of it is a great 
sort of standard to aspire to. But right now, the system that we've set up is basically it forces you to become a well-rounded person, even if you can't afford to. And that's not productive for anybody. Right. We already pay for 13 years of that anyway ahead of time. I don't know why you need to say, well, let's just do four more on a... Right. And, and so I think this whole po- political thing, free college for all, is like so misguided to me. Yeah. Because you're taking something that is provably uneconomic and saying, well, let's just burden the entirety of society with that instead of (laughs) individuals. Yeah. And the worst part of this is if we were to do the let's, you know, um, let's forgive all student loans. That would be one of the most strangely regressive policies that we could possibly enact because the people that go to college and have student loans are by and large middle class, upper middle class and upper class families. It's not poor people. Right. It's not the, the children of poor people. The, I, like people that were, that truly grew up in poverty, like myself, I didn't pay for most of college. The, the state already pays for you. So the people that actually are burdened with student loans are people who are from families that if the system's functioning correctly, should be able to afford it. But well, if we forgive those loans, that's effectively at least some portion of it will be a wealth transfer from poor people who pay taxes to 25 year old middle class, uh, Family members. To me, that doesn't feel like an ethical policy. Let's zoom out on ISAs in general. If if we're back here uh, doing round, you know, 15 of the podcast, 10 years from now and talking about how ISAs have changed the world, what sort of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies have emerged as a result of it, uh, besides placement, besides Lambda, what would you predict? So I think maybe going a level outside of that more more meta is right now the only instrument you have for things like education and re-education are debt instruments and an ISA is an equity instrument. And there's times when equity is better than debt. Uh, Debt has a capped upside and therefore it restricts itself to people who have or restricts itself to like situations where you have a capped upside and you need to manage to your downsides. Uh, Equity has an uncapped upside or somewhat uncapped upside. And so you're able to invest kind of more broadly and make bigger bets um, ISAs allow you to make bigger bets on people. Should startups take uh, more debt? Uh, startups, especially the first rounds, always take equity. Well, so the problem isn't that should they. The problem is can they and they can't, right? Debt is a good instrument when you are producing something that is basically collateralizable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, related to the education or, or the education conversation, one of the reasons why most loans are originated in, in education by the government is because it's not able to be collateralized. Right. And if in the case of default, there's nothing to seize. So it's the government that basically underwrites those loans. It's the same thing with a lot of like education, like what placement's doing is another good example is it, it's something that if we fail, right, we invest in you and fail, there's nothing to seize back. Or if you default, there's nothing to seize back. Right. Debt is the same way for startups is with a startup, particularly a software startup. You're not producing or using that money to buy some type of tangible property. Debt is really, really good for tangible property. And it's for this reason uh, that JD mentioned it, it. There is no power law return. It's a linear return model with most debt. And so if you're going to use equity, you can use equity basically for intangible property. Most startups are producing intangible property. And so that's why we use that financing method. But if you're using debt, you know, for most startups, it doesn't make sense. There are some that are increasingly using debt because they are taking on or tangible property, right? So Zeus Living, for example, just raised a Series A. I think it's a Series A. It might have been a B. Don't don't quote me on that. But 
a big part of their fundraise was a debt line that's going to be used for furniture in their houses. For people that don't know what this company does, they basically are, they, they fully furnish and manage your apartment building or your apartment units. And you get to basically live in a fully managed house. Um, really cool business. But they basically have taken on debt because they actually have a use case that is tangible property. Open door for every dollar we raised in equity, we raised, you know, three to four dollars in debt because homes are collateralizable. They produce income flows. So going back to the ISA question then, in 10 years, Sean, why do you take a step? What do you think are going to be some of the biggest uh, outcomes or, or, you know, what types of companies will, will be built on top of this asset that, that don't exist today? Like, are we going to see ISAs in healthcare? Like, I don't, what, what spaces do you think will make sense? Well, I think the first thing you'll see is a lot of the the sort of um, shovels and pickaxes businesses. So there's businesses that are going to be involved in servicing and making the management of ISAs easier. So today, Placement is building a lot of this in-house. In We're just doing it ourselves, right? There's all types of things that go on, go on here, right? It, it, in terms of auditing somebody's income, uh, making sure that you know, you're actually collecting the amount that's owed to you. There's a whole financial stack that's already being built. There's good players that are competing. Right now, it, it looks like a pretty... It looks like it might be a commodity business, but the best commodity businesses, you, know, you can build huge companies in a commodity business. The best one's going to win. Uh, it becomes the sort of default player. So there's, there's that. There's all types of things that you basically have to ask yourself, what types of investments can you make in a person that's not collateralizable, right? I don't know if I would have imagined that the cell phone industry would have been fueled by the financial instrument or financial technology of debt. But it was, right? It's like the fact that we could take on debt. People were able to buy these very expensive things. Same thing with automobiles. Installment plans were one of the big things that allowed the sewing machine industry to, to blossom. So there's all types of, like, I couldn't, I just couldn't possibly predict that. But the mental, the mental model that I would use is what are the intangible things that people can acquire over time as opposed to the physical things or the, the, the property that they can acquire over time. I think it will be really interesting to see what happens as markets develop around ISAs. Right now, no one really knows how these return, what returns are going to look like or what inputs lead to what outputs. So first round will be kind of doing that in an aggregated way. And then later, you're prob you'll probably get some form of market pricing for someone's. Yeah. So uh, the ability to fund someone like you maybe at 18 to do either college or Lambda school or something else through an income share agreement might be much cheaper for you than someone who doesn't have as some dimensions of potential that someone else identifies. And that's, there's probably a lot around that that could produce either inequality or it's going to be a lot. It's going to be very interesting to see how that develops over time. Yeah. It's interesting. It, it seems like any, anything that becomes or uh, any technology that makes things more of a meritocracy, it sort of you know, gives opportunity to people who uh, are really talented but not get uh, not getting the opportunities right now but creates inequality in other ways because it reveals more you know actual inequality you know inequality of skills or output yeah i mean if you have things like insurance right pool risk if you're able to know almost exactly ahead of time what's going to happen the you don't need to pull the risk you know it's going to happen right so you either you basically don't like that, it just the mechanism is broken. Now we can't predict the future, um, but you see this in healthcare, right? Is that you, the insurance companies aren't allowed to use potentially? You know, I'm not going to make a, a sort of uh, right or wrong claim on this, but they're not allowed to use certain inputs around behavior uh, to say whether or not they're willing to underwrite a person, right? Like whether or not somebody smokes cigarettes is not allowed, for example, to disqualify you from using health insurance. 
Well, that's in some capacity sort of counterproductive to the point of insurance because it's about risk pooling. And if there's somebody that is, it's not about risk. If you smoke cigarettes, like you're almost certainly going to die as a result of that. I, you know, I say this as an ex-smoker. Uh, and I, I ran the actual actuarial analysis on myself and, and, and changed my behavior. But, you know, if you're an insurance company, you would never want to underwrite that person because you, it's a sure thing, right? There's no, there's no risk. It's just, it's a guarantee that that person is going to have health problems as a result of that activity. So the same thing will be true as we, as we get better at predicting people's behavior or earning power is it's a bit dystopian in that regard is that we stop, if there stops being risk because we have so much certainty around the prediction. Right. And some people have the critiques, well, critiques on multiple sides. From an investment perspective, people say that it has, you know, uh, potentially equity like, ret- uh, risk for debt like returns. So it's unclear how it matches up. On the education side, it seems we've conflated sort of what you're talking about earlier, Sean, about sort of the, you know, liberal arts benefit of education, you know, cultivating, you know, uh, people's, uh, sort of internal, you know, soft skills, emotional depth. Yeah. Good for your soul. Exactly. Uh, versus, you know, we've, we've conflated that. We say it's good for your soul, but we, you know, when we talk, we talk to parents, you pay this much because you'll get this job increase. Do you see education sort of, uh, bifurcating back to maybe to what it was? Like, uh, there'll be, yeah, this is where you go where you, you, you for trades and here's for, for your soul. And, you know, if you don't want to pay for that, you don't get that. Or, and by the way, the trade schools, I think community colleges are exactly, yeah, awesome. Like yeah. you, pro- they're probably one of the most undervalued assets in America. Um, and, it could be that you're just sending more kids to yeah, and community in, colleges. In sending top kids there. Yeah. Right now we don't typically do that. Or, you know, former coal miners or wherever the jobs are moving away from. And then paying for their ability to then not just get that education, but then also helping them take get accepted into that new role in either the new place or an existing place. Yeah. Whether that's building a wind turbine or working in HVAC. Yeah. With respect to the bifurcation question, I would hope so. I just, I mean, for a lot of people... The internet is an incredible resource that allows you to expand your horizons and and build depth in your soul and connect with people in a way that you maybe couldn't even get at a university. And so I would hope that for most people, the internet allows you to do a lot of the same or acquire a lot of the same knowledge that you could get in a university. It's certainly a different setting. I'm, I'm, it's not a perfect substitute, but most people likely shouldn't be spending huge sums of money and going deeply, deeply in debt to, to experience this activity. And there is a pretty good substitute that's available for free on the internet. Yeah. Credentialing versus knowledge. Yeah. I've been really interested in credentialing recently because so in the last 10 years, I think we've made the transition as a society, which is, Hey, it used to be Harvard provides this unique education. Now it's Harvard provides this unique credential because education is on the internet. And I feel like that's a precarious place to, to be because, uh, for example, you know, if I ask you, JD or you, Sean, or, or many people, Hey, who are the best five people you've ever worked with or that you believe have enormous potential? I would probably trust that over uh, a Harvard degree. Well, all of them went to Harvard. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, if, if they didn't go to Harvard. And so, um, I think that's a uh, peer to peer credentialing is, I, I think we can get more granular in credentialing. I think, um, I think there's big opportunity there. We're just leaving that value on the table. But there's also the question when you ask who's the best in the world at this, it's, it's the best at what? You know, it's like a rough pass versus a fine pass filter is Harvard or, or a degree. Maybe that's, you know, I went to a, a decent school, I went to Berkeley. It's like if you go out of Berkeley, you know, there's like 20,000 grads a year or something insane. There's a lot of people coming through that. And you know that they're sort of a baseline competence because the system selects for that and graduating is hard. So you have this sort of baseline knowledge, but it doesn't tell you anything about specific knowledge, Right. And so I think that we could do a lot better at understanding how do we assess people's specific knowledge and specific skills. And if we're good at that, then you could, in a lot of cases, ignore the, the, the 
wide filter, like a degree, because you know that the person can do the specific things you actually care about. I mean, anyone who's ever hired a uh, computer science major into their company knows that you don't really learn very much yeah. from the computer science major. You, you learn a lot of the kind of underlying fundamentals, but how to build software is a very computer engineering, computer science are very different. So what do you guys think the future of credentialing looks like? Well, I would hope that you would just have a lot more local places that do actual tests, right? I want to unbundle the interview, right? And just distribute it across the entire country, uh, right? I want local facilities that are testing how much weight can you pick up if you're trying to be in a construction job, right? Can you do this type of welding? Just straight up being able to do the testing and decoupling testing from learning, right? Because the people that are the best at endowing you with knowledge aren't necessarily the people that should be setting the criteria for saying that you have the knowledge, right? Employers really should be the ones that are saying you have the knowledge and you should be seeking educational programs that are giving you the things that actual employers want right now. So I'd love to see that sort of just break up and, and go and become sort of like a, a far more uh, decentralized market for, for skill assessment, as opposed to being a centralized market for skill assessment with the, with the one big collegiate credential. We, d- we definitely have this shared narrative and story in American society by employers that a college degree confers these these skills um unclear how long that takes to, d- to come apart but there's definitely a mispricing what do, what do you think the hype is in isas or how do you determine between what's hype and what's real i don't think you should use isas for everything right i don't think isa is a, a drop-in replacement for debt for example or for any type of payment uh, i think that the isa is it's just an in, like so for example if you were to say i'm going to finance your car with an isa I think that that would probably be a step too far because debt is a very good instrument for that. So I would be cautious of people that are using ISAs in places where debt already is functional. In education and skill acquisition, debt's not really functional. We've seen that. And so, you know, get the job done, but we wind up with a, a gross misallocation of people's time and, and their future financial earning power, right? Because the people that are underwriting the debt's not financially aligned with them. So yeah, I mean, I would just be skeptical of of replacing debt with ISAs broadly. I think there are a lot of places where ISAs can be useful, but the infrastructure needs to be built up before they are. And coming in to saying, "Oh, this is just a way to finance things that otherwise wouldn't be financeable," I don't. That's not usually true. What does infrastructure look like here? A, a market first, where people can actually price these. Well, I don't know what to call these instruments. Yeah, the assets accurately. Um, we need, you need a fair amount of data before you can do that. You need some time. Um, and so I do think that a situation where like you provide venture capital to fund kind of the first round of students, if you might call them, um, to get some data in order to then create a market around it could, is a good model. It makes sense why Lambda school is raising a lot of venture capital right now. Yeah. There's also nothing like a, like a credit report for ISAs. So if you are a lender, or a potential lender, you can run somebody's credit report and see how much outstanding debt that they have, as well as some scores. But a big piece of it is just knowing sort of what is this person's current debt load. You can't know right now what a person's pledged income is. There's no registry for that. There's no like Equifax for for ISAs. Um, And so right now you sort of, because there's not very many people that have ISAs, you just assume that it's zero. Uh, but over time, that will be a problem that will emerge. 
what's led to the rise in, in ISAs in the last few years? Is it mostly the student debt that's led to the rise of things like Lambda? Is, is it cultural? Is it technological? What's led to the, to the rise of it, the recent rise? And, and what are bottlenecks that are constraining it going, you know, mainstream? Is it, Are they cultural? Are they technological? Are they both? I think part of it is skin in the game, which is that people become skeptical of someone putting a, especially in a new model, like a coding bootcamp where they say, we're going to double your income in, you know, six months or something. And by the way, you're going to be $20,000 in debt to us. What if you don't? So being able to align incentives, I think is really important there. And then also, um, who knows when I'm going to start getting paid after this? I I can't, people can't risk that. And so I I think aligned incentives is driving a lot of it. Yeah. But what's the why now for like this idea has been around since Milton Friedman brought it up in the sixties. Like what, what is you know uniquely enabled by by now? I think it's probably been around since hundreds of years before yeah, sure. that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, the why, why is it sort of interesting or, or prominent? Why, yeah. Right why, now? It, why are we talking about it now and not 2012? Or- well, so I mean, I think the the boot camps had a big role in that. Uh, technology has become, or software engineering has become a very high in demand skills. Uh, boot camps were some of the for the same reasons that JD just mentioned. You know, they were the early proponents of using income shares because they needed people to take this program that looked a little sketchy or was making outrageously ambitious claims. The other piece is just there's so much student debt, and we finally are seeing that the incentives of taking on debt isn't necessarily worth it, right? Is that we've underwritten a bunch of loans that we probably shouldn't have that aren't going to be ever able to be paid off in somebody's lifetime, or at least not using the skills that they acquired in the program. And so people are now skeptical of the existing model, right? And so they're looking for alternatives, and this income share thing looks pretty legitimate. Now, in terms of headwinds, what's going to, what's it going to take for this thing to, to take off? Well, look, they're still extremely risky assets. There isn't a bunch of pre-existing laws that say what happens when, for example, you go bankrupt or if the person passes away or, you know, what happens if they just decide not to pay? There isn't a massive corpus of well-documented case law to say what happens in all these cases. And so there's legal risk as somebody that's underwriting ISAs which means that the asset's going to be sort of selling at a discount for a while until we develop that precedent. As somebody that's working on a startup, this to me is a good thing because startups require risk. If there's no risk, there is no startup opportunity. So for me, the the sort of legal risk is attractive for a sort of main street or retail investor. They potentially wouldn't find it attractive unless they're attempting to generate alpha from, you know, their their sort of baseline portfolio. But, you know, that basically leaves the people that are actually financing these things to, to being venture capitalists who are taking extreme risks with their capital or very wealthy individuals that are also willing to do the same. Let's, uh, let's zoom out one level. So the reason I brought, brought you guys on, uh, besides being friends and, and great people is that you were exploring some ideas together. And so I'm curious if, if you both can comment at large, uh, on first on the, idea generating and validating process and what other founders who are now sort of in between things can learn from how you guys na- navigate that process. And then we can dive into some of the spaces that you guys explored um, and and what you learned from them. I'm a big believer in just market-driven exploration, not like technology-driven or kind of tops down. It's just people have a lot of ideas about how the future should be and how quickly and how inexpensively can you test that against the market. Yeah. Um, so whether that's smoke tests or just trying to get customers before you have the product. Right. And, and, and define smoke tests for the audience that may not be familiar. Yeah. So create a, have an idea for a landing page, design that landing page, throw a thousand dollars into Instagram ads and Facebook ads 
and measure conversion and see how it goes. Right. So it doesn't have to be a problem that you particularly have this is some startup lore. Or it doesn't have to be super, like a super fancy technology necessarily. Just as quick as you can have an hypothesis, validate a hypothesis. Yeah. Get Gather some leads. Uh, please don't collect credit card information for a product that doesn't exist, but gather some leads, call them, talk to them about their problems, iterate, do this four or five times, and you might have identified something. And you should you should care about what you're doing this for, like be prepared to spend 10 years on it. But this is muscle around figuring out which of those tests to try in the first place. So it's, you know, uh, you know, the lore is you got to solve a problem that you have. You can see problems all over the place and you don't have to have the problem to know the problem is real. It's easiest to feel it viscerally and feel how powerful that or painful that problem is when it's your own. But you can also just see problems on the internet and talking to people that you know or whatever it might be. Like, for example, I recently just had a, an awful, awful, awful experience with an online escrow, pro, escrow provider. I won't say their name to, to give them any brand, brand credits, uh, but I just had an awful experience. And if I wasn't starting placement, I would be yeah. going and aggressively competing with this company because their experience was so bad. Having that feeling, like there's this muscle that every great entrepreneur I know develops, which is when they feel pain on anything, a lot of people feel apathy or they feel sort of dejected entrepreneurs feel pissed off and ready to make yeah. money solving that problem <laughs> i remember when chris Aka, he tried to he tweeted about this or something he tried to get in um what's it called hamilton to see hamilton for his 40th birthday and like some ticket company i can't remember which one ticket stop ticket fly one of these made a mistake or like yeah didn't double booked i don't know whatever didn't get him his ticket and he couldn't go and he's like I can't wait to fund a competitor. Like, I can't wait to beat this company. But it's, it's somewhere right Like, you see a terrible service, you have a problem, you're like, I just want to build something better. Yeah. I wish I could tell you, I'm working on something right now. I wish I could talk about more, but it, you know, experience personal problem. And then you just keep asking why. Yeah. Um, in, in this case, it's a medical one, but, uh, I, you know, had this medical problem. My doctor offered me a solution. That solution didn't really work for me at all for a variety of reasons. And then you just, you're like, why is that your solution? And then you find out about other solutions. Yeah. And you're like, well, why wouldn't you have recommended that one? And it turns out all oh, your incentives are messed up. Okay, now there's a business. And so you, that's, that's just keep paying attention to those moments where you're confused about why the world is a certain way. Yeah. How should you think about competition? I mean, before this, we we're, were talking about hymns, like they obviously identified, you know, market need and had a great approach to it. And often, you know, obviously to compete with them now would be very difficult. How do you think, um, how should one think about competition? I think in general, when you're, so this is like where the art and science comes together. The art is figuring out what's a problem in the world. The science is you should have your checklist for, is the market big? Uh, can you actually enter that market and build a, build a position? Um, and then why are, and people talk about defensibility or moats or the way I think about it is compounding advantages. Why does your company get easier as you get bigger instead of harder? Most yeah. businesses actually get harder, especially in direct to consumer. Right. You're, initial first customers are cheapest to acquire because yeah. they need it the most as over time they get more and more expensive. Right. Um, that is a all birds or something. Yeah. Or Peloton even, or uh, blue apron yeah. and all these companies have increasing costs as they grow. You want to find a business where as you get bigger, your advantage grows while your moats get bigger. So example like Airbnb. Yeah. Airbnb. Exactly. Open door um, to compete with open door today would be insane because you would not only need to, like for you to make money again, offering the same amount, you would not be able to offer the same amount of money. Open door could offer a seller and make money because open door has large scale. They have low cost of capital. They have really, really efficient operations and they have high attach rates to adjacent services that are like more, more like mortgage title, things that add margin. So going in today and competing would be crazy. 
that's why it was good to start open door when we started it. You know what? I, I think there probably is room to start a hymns competitor today because a lot of that is brand. Yeah. If you, if you're sitting there as an entrepreneur using some product or service that exists and you're going, this is awful, then I wouldn't worry that much about competition, yeah. right? Like if you can figure out a go to market strategy where some small segment of your competitors addressable market is, is sort of open for the taking, then I would jump right in and, and try to take, take that little segment and grow into the, the line of business that your quote unquote competitor is in. The exi- the fact that somebody else is making money in a space doesn't mean that, that it's, it's saturated. Um, if it is, if like, if you have that emotional reaction, the, the space probably exists for competition. And so let's take the Hems Row example for a second. Would I find some stat that's like, you know, 80% of them, people are use it are this type of demographic and now I make something just for that demographic? Or like, how, how would you compete with, you know? I'm not a like direct to consumer person. Um, I don't really understand brand advantages, so I could be completely off on these, but I, I do think people are moving towards vertical brands. So gen millennials prefer direct to consumer products by about five. This is like some study I read. It could be totally made up, but the fake news that I read is millennials prefer, prefer direct to consumer brands over traditional brands by about 5%. Gen Z, which is upcoming is by 40%. I, I think that people identify very strongly by these new brands and kind of what they stand for. Um, and I think there's opportunity to target smaller and smaller niches with brands. So I would say where, where do these existing brands not, what is a large group that suffers from this? that is not being directly picked off by that brand and go for it. This is like, why can Kylie Jenner make a makeup brand when Sephora and 10,000 makeup brands exist? It's because she has a very specific look and audience that she fits very well. So Sean, why don't you take us down a little bit of your idea maze? Like what were ideas that you got excited about or got close to? And, and then you could talk about when you knew that placement was the one. All right. If someone, if someone does this, I'll fund you immediately with my personal money. I want, there was just so many, like there's, it goes everything from like big ideas, ambitious ideas, societal ideas to stupid ideas. Like one stupid idea, for example, was phone wipes. So I want something that like I can put in my wallet that I can, it's basically like a, like a baby wipe for my phone because I will fund that. If you can figure out a way to make baby wipes turn green when you rub them on your phone so it looks dirty at the end of it, I'm I'm all I'm all over this. I think the marketing there is good. See, it's like that's like one thing. I looked at my phone and I was like, my phone is gross. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> so I I just maintain this long list of ideas of things that I think like that could make money. And that's almost always my criteria. It's that could make money. If you're trying to start a business and the first thing you think is, I have no idea how that's gonna make money, uh, but it would be cool. Good for some people, not my type of entrepreneurship. Like I, I like to, I would rather start a business that makes money, um, than one that potentially makes money or potentially could generate revenue. So my idea maze is always like, will that make money? Yeah. And is it and worth what, my what time? are criteria for will that make money? It has to be like integrated into the value chain some way or how do you, it has to be clear customer. Like what, what is this sort of? Well, there, there's like some things that I think make a business really good. So does it have press or virality baked in? So does this product distribute itself? It's not a requirement, but it's, but it's great. Um, is there, what are examples of that? Well, Hims is an example that is like a counter to that, to be honest, is like, you know, no one's going out and evangelizing their, uh, hair loss medicine. Peloton <laughs> it is turns one. out that's actually not true. <laughs> really? It shocks me. Yeah. <laughs> I bite my tongue. <laughs> I know. It, I had no idea. <laughs> Things like, like berries, for example, is like when people use berries, it's like a cult. You can't not talk about it. Um, and so that's something that has press baked in. Others are like, uh, the, the cards against humanity guys every year do some type of stunt. 
it's something that you just can't not talk about. Right. And they're never doing it for money, but it, it's one, it's something that's like, it's just, it has press baked in. It's just like an instant hit. Um, so something that's following trends or riding some, you know, media wave is a good one. It's a good sort of criteria to have. Uh, another thing is that a sufficiently large number of people have this problem. The, what it, what it, sufficiently large is like weasel words, right? Like you can make it mean whatever you, you want it to mean. For me, it's a function of how many people do you need to make a good amount of money on this thing, right? If you're selling million dollar contracts to, to businesses, you don't need that many customers. If you're selling $5 or $2 phone wipes, you need like a hundred million customers for this to be a truly massive business. And so you, you basically have to look at the, the economics of the business and say, is it quote unquote sufficiently large per your goals? Yeah. And then is there, is there open space, right? Like, can you get in there, right? There's all types of businesses making money that you just can't possibly get in. And it depends on who you are and your position, right? Like if you were saying to me, I want to start a protein business or something, I would say, don't do that. Uh, there's lots of protein powders out there. It's going to be very hard for you to differentiate. And if you came to me and said, well, you know, I'm really good friends with Mark Wahlberg and you know, all these other Mm -hmm. celebrities and we want to start protein business together. I'd say, great. That's a really good distribution, you know? unfair advantage in distribution it totally i think context matters a lot are you saying i don't have an unfair advantage in protein shakes well you did what well, you used to work out at berries <laughs> exactly. like five days a week and exactly <laughs> was it two jack night now if i stick a balloon on you you're gonna float to the ceiling <laughs> we'll, we'll take that up later uh, so um okay something where you have an unfair advantage of how do you think about space you just talked about healthcare how do you think about spaces where you have a um highly regulated industry so healthcare I mean, real estate, um, you know, insurance, I don't know, fintech. How do you think about highly regulated industries? It probably depends. Or even in industries where there are no markets, like healthcare. (laughs) Yeah. So I think if you understand something that no one else understands, that might help you identify a really good opportunity. um, And that might give you a good time advantage, but you still need to have an accumulating advantage after that. So I think both Hims and Roe, as using the old example, were some of the first to understand the changes in telemedicine and what that enabled. But then afterwards, that secret's out. So, you know, in the same way that Open Door's secret on day one was that you can value homes uh, from a computer hundreds of miles away more accurately than by being there. That's a, and that more, most homes are sort of the same. Great secret. Everyone knows that now. Uh, you need more than that. One interesting thing is, yeah, at Flexport, we were super regulated. We were regulated by dozens of three-letter agencies and some four-letter agencies as well. They're all over the place. And one of the things that, that we thought a lot about was, you know, early employees would ask, well, why don't we just not follow the rules? It, it seemed to work for Uber. And our answer was, look, if your regulators can kick down your door with assault rifles and black boots, you listen to your regulators. And this is an important fact or just an important framework for me is if you're being regulated by, by agencies and, and there's good reasons or you don't understand the reasons yeah. for why that thing is regulated, if your business requires changing the law, you should probably not start that business unless you are a lobbyist or something or you're, you're connected with big business. Yeah. It's just like changing the law to make your business work is a losing value proposition for a business. It's a losing proposition because changing laws, it it takes a long time. It takes a lot of money to things that startups don't have. So things like, like HIMS or or Aro or any of these sort of telemedicine businesses, they weren't the ones that got those laws put into place. Those laws were already put into place and they're going out there and testing those laws and sort of working in those bounds. And I don't, I don't know if there's any case law that's been, been sort of brought up as a result of them, but often it's startups that are the ones that wind up getting sued relatively early on. But it's because it's ambiguous about whether what they're doing is right or wrong. 
if it's very clear that what you're doing is wrong, you should not do that thing. Uber was able to do it because, you know, the taxi monopolies were ridiculous. Like it was like actually an unethical thing that was going on, or at least it needed an update. It needed to be reimagined. And frankly, their regulators were city officials and they had more money than the city officials. So it was like they could beat their regulators. The regulators couldn't, you know, kick down their, their doors. But in France, their executives got arrested, right? Because the regulators there were, were national. So, you know, they tested it in a place where they shouldn't have tested it and it didn't turn out so well. Uh, so, that, I mean, in my mind, it's like follow the rules. If you don't know why the rules are there, follow the rules. Or just understand the rules. I think um, if you understand the rules better than someone else, uh, that gives you an advantage. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about insurance lately where the rules are – there are so many rules and it's so boring that I think a lot of the insurance companies, insurance tech companies that are coming out today could have easily been started – you know, six plus years ago and weren't because it's just so boring. Um, <laughs> but they're great businesses. And now that they're starting to work and as people are starting to see that come about, you're seeing more and more people enter. Yeah. Why is it so boring? Just because of so many de- details? Or What's fun about like life insurance? What, 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 what could I, if we had this conversation about life insurance, how many people would listen? Yeah. I think, I think the only thing about life insurance that's interesting is like marketing. And like, <laughs> We've just had an abundance of more interesting things to do recently. The supply of people that are good at starting startups is growing, but at least historically has been low. The The number of people that are well-versed in the art of starting a Silicon Valley-esque startup is, has grown quite substantially due to work from you know YC and just the internet. I mean, Eric, you've, you've done a lot to, to preach a lot on, on your Twitter feed. So people are just getting more educated about this. So you're seeing a greater abundance of businesses get started now that previously wouldn't have got started because there was like wide open space for building social networks, which are cool and photo sharing, which was fun and online games, which was like untested or untried. And so now we've sort of done all the really obviously fun things. Well, I think also the platforms have opened up like the, uh, Elad Gill had a great blog post saying the markets are bigger now and, and then they just are. Then there's this whole question of like, what is a tech company? Well, it, I, I'm actually still not sure what the answer is. Yeah. Especially in the last couple of weeks, we had some non-tech companies go public, Peloton. Sure. We, we work. Yeah. Um, we work's definitely not a tech company. Yeah. How do you guys think about what is a tech company, what is not a tech company, and, and why does that matter? I guess what is the implication? Because multiples or how we value them? or? Why well, I think matter? one of the big challenges is that we conflate what is a tech company with what is a software company. And What's the difference there? For me, you know, a software company is a company that's going to sell where each basically incremental unit costs almost nothing. Like the marginal cost of each unit produced is, is, is nearly zero, uh, which, uh, you know, lends itself to tremendous massive scale and horizontal scale, um, and really, really high profit margins, right? So those are the software companies. You can turn businesses into software companies, right? Like a, I think a lot of the th- hypotheses around Uber was that they were going to turn taxi, taxi businesses into software businesses. And that's what flooded venture money into that business. Same thing, I think, uh, in, in some, uh, some capacity with, with WeWork. AWS. AWS is a good example. But it's, it's interesting because like AWS is a, in my mind, I'd actually put that guy in a tech company as opposed to a software company. It, it basically is taking a physical asset that wasn't network, that wasn't software defined and turning it into a network software defined product. So in that case, you know, the thing that they're selling is still bare metal, right? It's, it's metal. There's actual costs associated with that. But they've just figured out a way to, to reduce the, the marginal transaction costs and enable new functionality. So in that way, it's a technology company, right? Because it is actually producing something with tech. It's just not selling software. Flexport's a good example as well. We don't think of ourselves as a, as a software company. We think about ourselves as a logistics company, 
We just are a tech enabled or a technology logistics company insofar that we're using software and we're using any other technology that's available to make that business better or more accessible, cheaper, right? More widely distributed, more intelligent. It placements the same way, right? We're in our heart of hearts. We're a talent business, but we're using software to vet people at scale, to place people at scale, to better match talent with jobs and opportunities. Uh, but you know, at the heart of hearts, what we're not, we're not selling software. We're selling, well, not talent. Like we're actually, we're selling two talent, but we're basically selling this professional service. I think is the question for me is whether technology is at the core of the value prop, like whether you're differentiated by your technology, but I don't know. Ben Thompson did an okay job explaining his version of this. It left me wanting more. Yeah. Speaking of technology, how do you guys think about, you know, when pursuing ideas, technology that hasn't yet sort of emerging technologies, maybe VR right now or crypto a few years ago or, or others. How do you know when you're too early versus it's the right time or I don't know, maybe it's too late. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you think about what sort of criteria or metrics are you thinking about to evaluate when is the right time for emerging technology? I just don't think about, I'm like, maybe it's the Steve Jobs thing where he said, you know, technology in service of a problem, in search of a problem is never the right way to go about that. This is why I was always such a crypto bear is it's just like, tell me the thing it can do that a database can't do um, better <laughs> or that Bitcoin isn't right. And you never got an answer or I never got an answer. So how about something like VR? In what in what use case? Like, tell me, tell me about the use case that currently is problematic for some industry where VR fixes it better. And then I can tell you about how VR is going to evolve for the next 10 years. But you need to start with the ideas. Yeah, I'll take an alternative vantage point. For me, it's a function of, you know, if you're actually trying to start a high growth startup, just stay away from this stuff. Yeah. This is not going to work. Um, at least statistically, it's not going to work. It sometimes does. Sort of a reason why people that are just hobbyists or fanatics about something are the people that are driving these things forward, right? Like crypto, for example, was driven forward by people that were working for free. Yeah. Um, they wanted to see global non-nation state-based money. And, you know, the fact that they're the ones that are, that are pushing it forward makes just a lot of sense because if you were trying to build a startup in that space, it was, would have just been very unlikely yeah. for that to have worked. I heard about the, I heard the story from about Coinbase. Apparently the, the CEO of the company there was not big into crypto when he started Coinbase. But he saw an opportunity where people wanted to get into buying cryptocurrencies and no one was doing that. So he just built the thing where Sold people could do shovels. that. Right. Exactly. And so like in that case, if you're in that type of business, it makes sense. Like if you're, if a bunch of people are trying to do a thing and you know, it, it wasn't clear that it was going to be as big of a business as he's trying to build. So if you're like deterministically trying to build, you know, a multi-billion dollar business, you, you got to follow JD's method. If there's not an obvious problem with an obvious, like sort of pre-existing thing, you know, it's just not going to work. You sometimes get lucky when you're a hobbyist that like your thing winds up being massive and, and you were right. Um, I, if, if you can predict that though, I mean, there are people who make big bets on technology risk. Yeah. I'm just not one of them. I'm a mark. I'm a big believer in market risk. Yeah. I like, I prefer almost commodity technology with big right. market risk. So Chris Dixon's you know, was their introduction thesis is uh, what the geeks are doing and nerds are doing on the weekends. That's what everyone else be doing in 10 years. And, they're looking to invest there. Great. I'll invest in seven years. Let's, uh, let's talk about consumer because that, that was a space that y you guys uh, explored uh, a bit. W what are you excited about uh, in consumer? Well, so I consider placement a consumer business and the, the sort of shape of the business is going to look very different than the shapes of businesses that we've had in the past, right? So like some massive consumer successes or Twitter, Facebook, Zynga, Groupon. These are businesses that thrived with, you know, millions, tens, hundreds of millions, and now billions of users. And that's what it took to make money in an ads driven business model. And with placement, 
I mean, we're tremendously, outrageously successful with tens or hundreds of thousands of, of customers. If we have millions of customers, we're like one of the largest businesses on the planet, assuming the same unit economics of, of what we're working on right now can per- per- persist. So it's like the shape of the consumer businesses are very different is we're going deeper, right? And needing to serve a far smaller segment of the population, um, which I think is interesting, right? Is like, is there opportunity to build a platform that's going to engage a billion users? Maybe, but those opportunities are, are not particularly abundant. Is there opportunities to go deeper on a relationship with a consumer, right? Either via insurance or financial products or, you know, life coaching or something like that and take a larger chunk. And so you don't need as many customers. I think that there's probably a, a, a huge number of opportunities that fit that mold. I'll start for me, the cost of living. So housing, transportation, education, and healthcare are like the dominant costs for most people. And so I, like diving deep into all of those and thinking about where opportunities are there. I think about lifestyle. So just experiences. So I I took a trip to France last year where I had a French friend who lived there and she took me down to Bordeaux with a bunch of other French people. And we met a bunch of chefs and people who made wine and I don't speak a word of French, but it was one of the best trips I've ever been on because of like the authenticity and natural kind of experience of like your, Oh, here's like a single bottle from a barrel that my friend made up the hill. And here's how you taste it. Blah, blah, blah. And the whole time I was thinking, man, like, thank God this just happened to me because there's no way for me to find something like this. You can't, you can't buy something that authentic. And I think Airbnb experiences is trying to do this, but it's not, it's still not right at all. Yeah. I want the person who works on pottery at Heath Ceramics to say, Hey, I'm going to go look at new glazes in Thailand spots for eight people to come along with me. Uh, I want, you know, my favorite bartender in my favorite restaurant to say, I'm going to go to Spain to find a new cava for our menu spots for five. And like, that's going to fund their trip. Like that to me, something like that I'm, I'm waiting for. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, I remember these two kids from Facebook who were working on sort of a, uh, you know, you press a button and then they'll set up a date for you or, or you know, or set up a friend's experience. And um, it, it's a different, different iteration of what you're talking about, but yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, that, that's my request for startup. This this one's an interesting, like, just sort of like mental or like mental model to think about, you know, how do you continue to grow the American economy when it's already really, really big, right? We've had a handful of waves of sort of industries in, in the economy. You had um, agriculture and then industrialism and then the rise of the service sector. We're in the rise of the information economy. But I think that there's this like new wave, which is the experience economy. And what's really interesting about the experience economy is it's, it's almost all non commodities, right? Is what people are willing to pay for experiences are, it's not based on any cost of goods. A lot of these things are pretty cheap is that there's like very, you basically desire is binary in a lot of these things, right? Like for example, like my, Desire to pay for a Taylor Swift concert is zero, but for a Taylor Swift fan, their desire to do that is like basically most of their liquid net worth in some <laughs> cases. Like if you could meet Taylor Swift, like you're basically willing to pay everything for that experience. Or if you could go and do Heath ceramics trips with like somebody that is super famous in that space, or like you can cook bread with the, the, the world's best bread baker. Like the, the price elasticity for these types of experiences is just, it's super binary. It's like Cameo is a big company. Yeah, exactly. Is it's like these, there's these transformative experiences that we're now able to sell. It's like we already mastered as an economy. We mastered the, the rote service sector of being able to buy stuff. Buying stuff is a solved problem. Now it's a race to the bottom in terms of commodities and commodity delivery. 
but buying experiences like, man, we're just scratching the surface. Like we don't even know what, it, what is an experience? What does the Amazon for experiences look like? And I think it's, humans are like just infinitely fractal. Like if you find any community, you'll instantly start to hear about the sub communities and just keeps going. Like I'm sure there's like 50 sects of bronies or something like where they each one is just arguing with each other about the right way to view an episode or something. Like I just, it's no matter what you pick. And so I think that it's, it's just going to be, it's, it's much bigger than, you know, one thing it's hard to commoditize because people's desires and interests are so divergent. So if Amazon started with books, what is the Amazon for experience to start with? You think probably food. I don't know. I mean like anything that you can Instagram dude, because a lot of these things, it's all about status, right? Is like a, the, one of the, you know, we used to have a conspicuous consumption, right? People drove fancy cars and had really nice watches and wore name brand clothes. And in some pockets of society, we still do that. But in other pockets of society, we don't. We've sort of like shedded those things because it actually turns out that you can get more bang for your buck in terms of the status game by, yeah. by paying for experiences, right? Is if you're able to go and collect experiences and broadcast that to everybody you know on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever that is, uh, then you're going to just get a lot more people to see the sort of artifacts of your, of your spending, yeah. right? To like, figure out what your rank in society is in a way that a watch just doesn't anymore. Cause not everybody knows how expensive a watch is, but everybody kind of knows how expensive the trip to Thailand is, or at least they know it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah and taste making. I mean, I, I think Sean's right and it depresses the hell out of me. <laughs> Why is that? Because I don't think status actually makes people happier. I think it makes them sadder. Um, I think the less I use Instagram, the happier I get. I don't, I haven't found anyone where that's not true. Right. Is the way to get around that to just the more different you are, the less you compare yourself to others? Maybe it's just getting older. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see if our generation gets into the mid thirties and forties, how much they still do this. If you just build up a tolerance against it and just like, I have seven friends. They're fine. Yeah. Interesting. The Amazon for experience, you know, the, um, the things that come to mind for me, like the make a wish foundation. Like, I feel like they were really onto something. Like some kids got some terminal disease and you like make his dream come true. And then other people don't like, yeah, I wonder if it starts to look like different versions of reality TV or something that everyone can experience. Well, there's a lot more channels to have reality TV. There's a lot of YouTube celebrities that people are super fanatic about. And yeah. those guys are basically able and gals are able to convert their social capital into financial capital yeah. by monetizing themselves and experience. I mean, this is Cameo, right? Cameo is like, just like, hey, straight up, like your dream is to hear me say your name. And that's, you know, what this report recording video It's like crazy how people react on that. I, I still think there's a huge opportunity um, as a business to make, to help these quote unquote influencers uh, yeah. make money. The plot, the platforms there are really lacking. We can't tell you how many uh, you'll, you'll see tons of um, like women whose audiences are like 95% men yeah. advertising like clothing brands. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense at all. And if they're doing that, then you're just like, okay, clearly something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if live video might work. You know, Twitch is the only sort of gaming is the only vertical in which live video has really worked at scale. We backed a company that was trying to do it in makeup or you make makeup stars, but I wonder if live video is a way that people will be or, or some version of asynchronous with, with live. But, uh, I wonder what these influencer platforms will, will look like. Is it just backend you know, infrastructure stuff? Is it new networks? I, I think Facebook might end up capturing a lot of it. I, I suspect Instagram's like internal teams are probably focused heavily on commercialization yeah. um, of of their creators but we'll see there's some company don't quote me on where it's from i think it's in china where basically there's a bunch of manufacturers that 
what they're doing is they're partnering with these influencers to figure out what products those influencers should be selling and just becoming that basically is their sales channel. Right. So like the core innovation of selling Tupperware in the 1940s and 50s was have housewives sell it to their, to their friends. The core innovation of selling Tupperware in 2020 is have some online influencer who already has some pre-existing social, social cachet and, and reach sell it to their audience and put their own name on it. So a lot of these people that are producing commodity products are just basically slapping on branding, um, and using these influencers as their distribution. Which is, I think, really smart, right? Because now you're cutting out the retailer, you're cutting out an American company that's basically doing that, or just some like branding middleman. If you just have some brand resource, an influencer, and the manufacturer, you have all the components you need to actually push those products. I think one of the harder things about this over time is going to be how do you capture any of those economics unless you're either the platform or the creator. And the, the middlemen are just going to get squeezed out. You're going to have the people who are actually manufacturing, who are going to be producing mostly commodities. Yeah. Um, and then you have like, or maybe a better way of saying this is you have the person who makes makeup at a 2%, you know, net margin. And then you have Kylie Jenner who's making 75%. Right. And, and why did you pick the cost of living? You mentioned transportation, healthcare, education. You, what you didn't mention is media, you know, consumer social, just because that's already farmed out or... The, the cost of those over time keeps going down, whereas the cost of the things I mentioned keeps going up. And so one of the personal interests I have is how do you make people feel richer? Like we are objectively making more dollars, but we're spending more and more of them on the basics. And those basics should stay cost neutral or cheap, become cheaper over time. Right. And so is it just better technology to make them cheaper or what? how are we going to do that? Oh, it depends on the problem. I mean, I think healthcare is one of the most interesting ones because so there's this argument that healthcare is like a, in the U.S. is kind of capitalist and market driven. And if only we had like single payer, you know, it, it's not even it's none of those things. It's a giant mess. Um, like in one obvious way of testing this is like try and start a hospital to address like, you know, people who break bones or something. You just can't do that. Um, and you can't charge for that. And so it's very clearly not market driven. It's very clearly not single payer, you know, fully whatever. And it's just a disaster. And so how can you peel off pieces of that and make it more either market driven or something else? Very interested in that. So I think vertical brands in healthcare is really interesting trend. And what I'm looking at closely. So what are other examples of vertical, vertical brands in healthcare? Forward health. Forward. Pretty interesting. Yep. No insurance based primary care. Yeah. Yep. So then you, and you have a, you have future, which is uh, for working out. It's like basically a trainer, a real trainer in your pocket. Yeah. You have uh, a company I invested in called Sword, which is a uh, physical therapy company. You, they send you a kit with an iPad. You attach basically this like sensor onto your knees and elbows, and then it's faster time to recovery than a personal trainer with better for new for knee replacements, hip replacements at one tenth of the cost. So it's faster, better, cheaper. How can you just keep finding more and more? And musculoskeletal diseases are like you know thirty six billion dollars a year or something. Yeah. And so just kind of keep peeling off those pieces and allowing people to innovate on each. I'm sure if you were able to create like a CAT scan facility, you could do it for much cheaper than the hospital does. I wish you could make it for, I think people get billed like $20,000 to have a kid um, if they were not insured. Like that's certainly able to be done cheaper if you were able to actually do that. Education. Where in 10 years might there be a big company in a subspace or or subcategory within education that doesn't exist today? 
there's so many things, right? It's like the market is evolving super rapidly is like one of the things where you like one known thing that you can do to earn a lot more money is just learn a second language, like learn Spanish. If you're in basically any industry and you live in the Southwest of the United States, like you can earn a lot. So if you are both a nurse and can speak Spanish, you command a much higher salary. And so, you know, there's educational programs that are based specific, that, that could be based around specifically like medical Spanish or medical or whatever other, the sort of other language is might be is that, that specialized uh, language acquisition isn't actually taught in most places yeah. that are, that are teaching you that language. Imagine a like service where you could say all the things you can do and how good you are at them. And then it can say to you where you could be working and how much yeah. you can be making. And it was just a press of the button to kind of apply to that and in a high you had high confidence you'd actually get that job that's right. what we're building in placement it's just we're but, starting with location yeah do that but with a better ceo yeah. <laughs> i'm an <laughs> investor <laughs> um yeah like that and then maybe there's a so that's like v1 right and then v2 is by the way if you add this skill now you can unlock this which is going to take your income from sixty two thousand dollars a year and in you know, San Francisco to $80,000 a year in a place at one half the cost of living. That doesn't exist. None of that really exists right now. But well, you'd think LinkedIn would have been able to do something like this. It's not even close. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is this idea of like skills debt. So in, in technology, we know that as you build software, if you do it sloppily, or if you don't rethink the premises, you acquire technical debt. And what a lot of companies do is they'll, they'll build, 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 they won't rethink the foundation or, or they, you know, didn't have the time or money or resources. And eventually they realize, oh man, we can't build the next feature. The incremental cost of building the feature is so large. What we actually need to do is rebuild, right? And so they sort of declare bankruptcy on their technical debt and rebuild. Great companies often don't do it this way. They'll take on a little bit of debt and then pay it off and take on a little bit of debt and then pay it off because the cost to paying off technical debt grows relatively. It like, I'm not going to say exponentially, but it grows non-linearly. Or like as you take on more, it becomes more expensive to pay off, um, both in terms of opportunity cost and, and raw cost to fix it. It's like any other kind of debt. It's like any other kind of debt. It compounds, right? The, the debt is compounding. And I think we have this with skills as well. In Silicon Valley, people are really good at acquiring incremental skills. In other industries, uh, it doesn't feel as if that's the case. And it, we often are not transferring those skills across new industries or acquiring, you know, this one incremental thing that you should be doing. Instead, what we're, what we have happen structurally is people go into increasing levels of skills debt as they are in a career, then declare bankruptcy and go to school and go into financial debt. Then they pay off their financial debt as they go into skills debt and then repeat. Um, like we, we go work to housing debt, right? And then they go to housing debt. Like we, we work with a lot of people that are on the lower end of the earning spectrum. And I mean, it's really shocking how many people are like, Oh, I went to sort of nursing school and paralegal school and uh, I did massage therapy school and these things didn't really work out for them. Um, they're in a lot of debt still from each of those things, but the market didn't materialize or whatever. And so they, you know, they go into skills debt and then go into financial debt to get out of it. I'd be really interested to see how can we help people acquire small incremental skills over time such that they never have to declare bankruptcy and hit the big red pause button on their life and go back to school for two or four years or even six months. Like that's very costly. And so if we can avoid doing that, I think that that'd be very interesting. Let's talk about the other cost of living uh, categories you mentioned, JD, uh, housing and transportation. Where do you think, where are you, you looking as an investor for, for big companies to emerge there? And I'm curious in housing, when you know, so much of the problem seems policy related, how do you think that there are you know, big business opportunities? There? Uh, we'll start with policy. 
I, I think um, housing is hard, especially in California. Part of the problem with housing is that it's not actually a problem everywhere. It's fine in, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, and outside of Denver, even, even where it's gotten really expensive relative to where it was, it's still quite affordable. In San Francisco, like the median single family home is now like $1.2 million or something. And so, whew, how do you start chipping away at that without, you know, taking away the equity from everybody? I, I think, I think it is political and it's policy. I think you start by saying, how do we actually start creating how do we make it easier to build? How do we make it look at Tokyo, right? You're able to buy a place, just tear it down and build more units. Uh, and so the prices stay constant, but you have to be comfortable with a city not being locked in amber. You have to be comfortable with your neighborhood changing pretty dramatically over time. Um, I don't think people are, are that way right now. I, I looked at the East Bay. I think it's more likely to happen in the East Bay than it is in San Francisco. The other thing is that people expect prices to come down, uh, I think they might come down, but eventually they're going to keep going back up. Because, but I also think that incomes are going to keep going up. You know, in the same way that housing is very expensive in San Francisco, the median income in San Francisco is ninety six thousand dollars, and so it's not a problem for it to be more expensive than you know Topeka, Kansas, but it's a problem for it to be as much more expensive as it is. The other way that I, I think about this problem is in terms of a market for governance. So there are people that are diligently working at. You know, addressing the, the problems in San Francisco and in California at large uh, with, with respect to affordability. And, you know, I will participate in those things because I live here. Uh, but in terms of immediate things that people can do, well, one of the things that we can do is we can just move people to places that have better governance or have different geographic characteristics, right? San Francisco is, is landlocked or we're just, we're, we're locked around by, by water. So the city can't physically expand in the same way that a Houston or a Phoenix can. Uh, and so you have to, you basically have to build up and there's politics around that. Well, in places where the, the problem has been solved, we can move incremental talent to those places. I mean, I think about it a little bit like Palo Alto versus San Francisco is Palo Alto decided that they didn't want to build density, that they were going to be a, a short city with respect to how big their, their houses were going to be. And as a result, all the startups went north. Right. Like the center of, of the balance of power for technology is no longer Palo Alto. It moved north to San Francisco. And now it seems like it's getting unbundled to places all over across the country because San Francisco is making at least they're, they're making the transition to deciding to be a tall city much slower than the market is demanding them to. Right. So costs are going out of control. And as a result, people are just going elsewhere. Right. So like placement is with well, this is partly one of the, the motivating observations that we made is, you know, it just it used to be a good deal to go to San Francisco and it just isn't anymore for most roles. For some, it is. If you're a software engineer, I mean, look, the economy is built for you here. So if you're making a lot of money, it's a great place to be. If you're making 80 grand a year, you know, there's just better places. And so creating that market for governance where we can learn, right? Like we're a federal, like the federalist system is so good because we can learn, we can run not controlled experiments, but like semi-controlled experiments. Some cities can enact rent control and others cannot. And we can see what happens and people can vote with their feet. Can you imagine how much better Californian governance would be if we didn't have good weather? I, 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 I think it's just like the monopoly on good weather is the underlying cause of so much of this. It's funny because Florida, Miami, and LA are some of the, the most expensive places in, in the entire country. And it's for this reason. It's yeah. just really beautiful. Yeah. Our pr property tax regime is insane. Our building code regime is insane. Yes, I'm, I've become less and less optimistic over time about San Francisco's ability to fix this or desire to. Yeah. And how does somebody who has, uh, 
you know, been successful in technology and then realizes that the problems are not policy focused. How do you then make a dent there? Do you, do you not? Do you say, Hey, I'm going to focus on what I can control or how do tech people get involved in policy? There are a lot of ways to get involved. You can reach out to me and I can introduce you to the people who are doing really good work here. Um, I just decided I was, I didn't have the energy for it or I did, but it was not worth, yeah. I, there are other things I'd rather work on because I can always vote with my feet later if I don't, if it doesn't get fixed. Right. And you want to focus where you can make unique impacts uh, yeah. based on your skills and resources. If anyone's ever met me, they've never been like, you should be a politician. <laughs> you have a lot of patience. You're, you're so patient and constantly likable and you're willing to listen. <laughs> no, it's just not really. <laughs> you know when to hold back. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, you guys thought a lot about the future of, of cities and, and whether there was startup opportunities there and what that could look like. Why don't you share some of your learnings for, for future cities, how people can, what big businesses can result as, as a result of that and where that's going? I'm still so bullish on micro mobility. Like, I think it's going to be a really interesting world where we basically are starting with these pretty dumb, small scooters and they're just going to keep growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger until we have a full spectrum between scooter and car, um, at various price points and for different weather. And so I don't know. I mean, when I look at, what, it, what do I think could be transformative for density in cities and eliminating um, uh, congestion in our streets, i.e. enabling the labor market to be more fluid and, and, and more efficient? Like e-bikes are amazing in places where weather allows is that they're increasingly cheap because the costs are just going down. Like the mass production of electric cars is enabling us to also mass produce smaller batteries for e-bikes. So like e-bikes are getting to benefit from that sort of knowledge spillover. And it's just, I mean, it's amazing is you could take somebody that's not that fit and get them somewhat on a like small exercise regime. And you can basically buy a more expensive e-bike if you want no exercise and scale your way down. They're basically like stripped down motorcycles and they don't go that fast. So I, we just enable people to move through cities so much better, which does two things. Actually, it, it some in some capacity addresses the affordability crisis, because if you're able to expand the sphere in which people are able to commute in, it basically enable people to get downtown from farther away places within about the same amount of time, then you've massively increased the supply of addressable or, or sort of uh, suitable housing for, for workers, which is a really good thing. Uh, I think we just need to have, like if you can couple the rise of e-bikes with mass transit, like, like, you know, subways or trains that are suitable for bringing e-bikes onto those things. I think the combination of those two modes could be so revolutionary in terms of, uh, expanding the geographic footprint that cities can, can be, become sort of habitable for. Yeah. I think like protected bike lanes and things like that will unlock a lot of that. I still believe, even though the U S is fully urbanized, that there's space for a new city in the U S to come about. I think you can just see like Black Rock City from Burning Man and how like out of nowhere every year, 80, I've never been, but you know, 80,000 people show up, create this city in like two weeks, live in it for a week and then go away. And the urban planning there is incredible. Um, And it's all been this bottom up kind of evolution over time that made this infrastructure work. Uh, If that can happen, you can, someone clever, the right entrepreneur can make this happen somewhere else. Um, I just don't know the right full set of ingredients. Would, would you go, would you go in and build from scratch, right? Like go like literally go find a plot in the desert and build from scratch. Or would you go find some city that already has some basic infrastructure and, and build on top of it? Right. Is this like an M and a play or is this like a startup play? Yeah, I think it's actually a startup play. 
I, I think you need to have somewhere that has good water rights, that has good, you know, access to core infrastructure. But I, I don't think you could, like, I think probably all the problems with, is that when you're starting not from scratch, you have the people who are already there mm-hmm. and they don't like change. Um, this is a political problem. But if you start a place with the idea that change is going to be happening and it's going to be constant, and that's sort of built into the culture and code of that city, I think that could be really interesting because cities' cultures almost never change when they found. Are you are you are you talking about building Galt's Gulch? No. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the wedge here? Is it in the U.S.? Is it in Honduras? Is it in Africa? Like where does it? Take oh, I, I'm talking about in the U.S. But I think that I think it's obviously going to happen in. It has to happen in Africa. That's not even. That's just a math problem. You have a billion people urbanizing into cities that don't exist yet. So someone's going to make them. Uh, this is a whole Paul Romer thing, which is, you know, we have this one opportunity now to build these cities well, because if we don't, they're going to basically just be bad cities for a long time. And that's Africa. Uh, in Africa, um, which is the least urbanized in the world. Uh, the U.S. is at like 83% urbanized, which is, seems to be a steady state. Hmm. Our uh, friend Patrick Friedman is starting a, a fund to focus on on charter city investments. What would be if if you were running that fund? What would be your either request for startups or or is it too early? Or how do you think about uh, the charter city sort of business landscape or from a startup perspective? Yeah, I I, uh, I work with a nonprofit called the Charter City Institute that's looking into mostly Africa, but also Honduras and elsewhere. Uh, working with governments there to create sort of better special economic zone legislation. I think it has to start with government. If you don't have that in those areas, you don't, you have no defense. It's not defensible and you have a lot of governance issues in those areas, unsurprisingly. So I think it, it starts there. Um, it starts with governance. And then once you have that, it probably starts with who, what are you going to specialize in? How are you going to get people to come? It, the U.S. has all these different stories about why each part of the U.S. kind of get, got created in the first place. And those, those initial stories are still true. Like SF is still a very boom, boom town, prospecting town, uh, you know, the Northeast still has that whole Protestant work ethic thing. The Southern gent- gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, it's funny cause it, it, he probably doesn't know this. We, we only met just the one time, but he told me about, uh, what he was working on. And it was in that conversation that the current incarnation of placement sort of was formed. Patrick, you and Patrick. Yeah. So I had this conversation with him and he did was I introduce you? Not you, did, you, you did. You did. <laughs> you did introduce me. <laughs> yeah. wow, uh, that's incredible. and he was telling me about how he's going to start these, these, uh, these charter cities and they were going to be really cool. They're going to have this great governance. And I, I asked him, I was like, well, okay, so you're going to build this infrastructure, like legal infrastructure, maybe perhaps physical infrastructure. How the hell are you going to convince people to move there? And I was like, all sort of all at once. I was like, well, what if you like did an ISA with them? You convince them to come to these cities. You said, look, if you, if you move here, it's going to be great. And I'll like take a risk. Like I'll pay you until it's, until it's great or something like that. And he was like, oh, I don't, I don't, that sounds fine. People will move there. It's not a big deal. And I immediately was like, I'm going to just go do that in the United States because even now the people that I know that have moved have made that decision in a relatively uneducated way, right? They just sort of moved to places that they had heard of um, or had visited once, right? Without really taking a holistic view. And it became clear that like, if you're going to start a new place, you need to find people that are going to be useful in that place and provide a mechanism for them to get there. What you didn't mention during the why now thing for ISAs is I think you um, a big why now is that everyone's online and you can target them. That's really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> this goes back to influencers. Like if Kylie Jenner was like, hey, all my fans, we're moving here. A lot of them would move. I think a lot of them would move. I mean, like DJ, DJ Khaled used to be like, hey, look where I'm at. And people just flood the streets. <laughs> or there was that like, there was a Kanye concert where he just like showed up somewhere. And I think it was New York. And like literally the whole streets were just flooded with thousands upon thousands of people. 
uh, like people just want to be associated with that. Maybe that's the bootstrap. You just pick, <laughs> you pick, uh, you like in, intelligently pick the, you know, 20 celebrities who might bring the most people. I mean, this, LA still is this, right? Like people flock to LA. It's, it's not a place where a lot of people can make great careers. It's also very expensive. And yet people flock to be around these people that they perceive as, you know, very high status and prestigious yeah. and interesting. Yeah. Are you starting golf scotch, Sean? <laughs> no. <laughs> will you ever own land? Like, will you ever start your own cities? I don't know. I mean, like, I'm pretty ambitious. So in my, in the, in the future version of placement, you know, we, we have def- helped define the, the legislation for all of the great cities and help there be like a large, you know, the way I look at it is like, I would rather have 20 great American cities that are all thriving than one or two great mega cities. Because I think that you produce much more innovation with diversity. And it's not just about diversity of industries or diversity of, of the, the way that you look or, or whatever. It's like you actually want diversity of politics. You want diversity of everything. You want diversity of, of natural resources and the things that you're inspired by. And, you know, sort of single mega cities with accumulating returns. I think it's kind of detrimental because you wind up with this like very fragile system. Um, or maybe it's robust, but like it's, it's certainly like I like Nassim Taleb's, um, framework of, you know, fragile, robust and anti-fragile. Mega cities might be robust, but they're certainly not anti-fragile. A distributed network of very good high growth cities is more anti-fragile, right? Because as the world changes, different places will be better specialized. So I don't want to go start the one city to rule them all, but like certainly if, if, you know, we see that placement works, I'd, I'd love to invest in those cities. One thing I, think about a lot right now is uh how the internet has sort of created this cultural homogeneity across the world and the pros and cons of that the pros of course are that you at least are speaking not literally the same language but at least you have a lot more in common with each other so it's probably decreasing the likelihood of mega violence yeah like mega violence and world wars but it uh, the cost is that i think there's a huge loss of ideas there's also this idea of like online territory and i think part of the reason why a lot of the online discourse is so toxic is uh, there's no space for me to say, Hey, this is where a group of people who are thinking like me is now going to talk, uh, come and talk as long as you think like me right now. And maybe I'll think differently in another moment with a different group. Right. And so all of a sudden you're now intruding in my space. If you bring ideas, I don't want to talk about yeah. even if that's, you know, I wasn't invited in the first place. Right. Well, you know, a lot of thinkers, Robert Wright famously in his book, non-zero talk about basically he predicted 20 years ago that, uh, we either need to globalize successfully or, or perish, like integrate as innocently or, or chaos. And I, I'm curious if there actually be a greater localization. Like, will there be like a thousand Israels or a thousand Norway, like all these, you know, small, you know, uh, like-minded groups just, in, you know, organizing around similar, uh, similar traits and everyone's actually separate, but integrated in this larger thing, but they have their spaces, either physical or online. Cause right now it's just sort of this great. Like everyone's just meshed together. I mean, look, this is the vision of America. And like, whenever I, I, I keep coming back to this is like, we did so well designing America is that the thing that unites us is a love of freedom, right? It's the freedom of speech. It's the, the freedom of press, right? Is that we built this singular body that protects the baseline things that all people must agree on. And if you don't agree that we should have these freedoms, you need to leave, right? And like, we, we go to war with people that don't believe that those baseline freedoms should exist. But then we have a nation of states. Like those states are allowed to be people that just have differences of opinion. And I find it very risky for us to hoist more and more things up to the federal level because it adds fragility into a system that's otherwise very anti-fragile. And, and for some folks, maybe Patrick, among them, the utopia is 
total exit, but actually a limited voice in the sense that, you know, uh, governments look more like Apple or, or Google, you know, for uh, Android or iPhone. I, I'm not determining what's in the phone, but I can just leave, you know, and find the one that more fits me and, and they're focused on me as a customer. Does that resonate with, with y'all or how do you guys think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest risk is the bundling, right? So like the more things you bundle, the more risky it becomes because the cost to exit is too high. And so things like Apple or Amazon increasingly bundling more things into that, into their baseline service restricts your ability to exit. And so for me, it's, you know, it's, they might not be monopolists in anything, but they're monopolists in everything. Right. Um, and to me, that's the risk. And we do this with governments is the more things that you put into your local or state or federal government, government, the more difficult it is to leave because you have to leave behind the whole bundle. Right. The thing that's so wonderful about. Um, a market system, at least a healthy market system that's prevented sort of extreme monopolism is that you have the right to sort of bounce around between providers, right? And you can choose to use a different, uh, home insurance provider than, than your auto insurance provider. And, but if those things are bundled, that becomes very fragile, right? It becomes very difficult to get the right deal or to price that asset accurately. One of the models you guys have been exploring is, uh, is private equity. Why don't you talk about a little bit why? why you found that interesting and because that's not something you hear a lot about in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So, um, there are a couple different pieces to that. One is I, I don't know many, if there's any private equity firms out there that think about product as a lever, they think a lot about operations. They think about costs. They think about financial instruments, but more and more, if you just take best practice technology and apply that and best practice product innovation, apply that to existing you know public companies or large private companies, uh, there's probably ways to unlock a lot of value there. And so that was one dimension I think we were looking through. Uh, the second is that there are um, just areas that are just over, also overlooked by private equity. We were looking at small cap, kind of micro cap companies that where you can make a not just a incremental difference in the orders of percentage, but maybe two or three x the business quickly with a small change. It's also places that we we're looking at where it was just difficult to get in. It, like there's just a strong barrier to entry. There's some physical asset that is meaningfully differentiated, but that they, that we sort of thought were, you know, they're using suboptimally. Um, one example, I'm glad we didn't do it was thinking about rolling up fulfillment centers. You know, Shopify is now entering that space with a platform play. It's very good. But if you, you know, if you wanted to compete with, if you wanted to basically compete in the fulfillment center world, just buying a bunch of existing assets would probably be a pretty good play. I don't think that you're going to use technology to make those baseline assets all that more you know, valuable. And so it's the network on top that's more valuable. But if you control the the asset, then um, be able to optimize their op- operations more. So it's like, can you get into a business? If getting into the business is really hard, buying the company is good. You just get in by, by buying something that already exists. It's also just like software and, and technology is a mature business now. And a lot of the techniques of private equity work in mature markets. And the people that have historically been uh, doing Private equity aren't technologists or not from technology backgrounds. A lot of them are from, say, retail retail backgrounds or CPG backgrounds. And so they were good at rolling those things up or insurance backgrounds are good at rolling those things up. Um, not a lot of players. Uh, there's not a lot of overlap between the private equity and the technology crowd. You're seeing more and more of this happening now. So Vista, Vista uh, just raised a $35 billion fund. They've managed to you know, have incredible returns. Basically, with their playbook is just mostly buying up these sort of vertical CRMs and applying a playbook to best, best practices to their sales and other channels, right? Uh, and they've done phenomenally well over the last... 15 years, 20 15 years. 15 years, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, you can take 
that's instructive. I mean, there's also just like, there's all these places where like you need, where equity capital is the wrong thing, or you need a mixer of equity and debt and like private equity is just a good, you know, it's like, it's like, it's such a broad term, right? Like I think when people hear private equity, they think like buying companies and gutting them. We had no intention ever of doing that. Uh, we were really thinking about how do you buy these companies and inject innovation and make them just better businesses overall. What the weirdest one we were looking at was this, uh, hundred to $200 million public company called collector's universe, which is a trading. Basically they, uh, they grade coins and cards like basketball cards, things like that. And if you go on their website, you'll see that you can't actually figure out how to send them their product. Like it's, it's almost impossible to actually use their company. And yet they're making, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year in cash flow. And you're like, well, I could totally <laughs> make this work better. Uh, and they basically, you know, their certification is sort of like a pseudo monopoly on that. And so you can come in and say, okay, great. Well, like there were four or five different things you we were looking at where you're like, okay, the way they charge for shipping, instead of making someone provide their own shipping label, you can just charge for a shipping label and then have bulk discounts. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you get an extra $70 million in enterprise value. I really hope the, the CEO of Collector's Universe listens to this and realizes that two guys sitting in San Francisco were, were considering buying his business with, with <laughs> <Yeah>. no money. <laughs> and credit where I do, this was, uh, this was pointed to me by my, by my friend Lior, who is the CEO of Lob, who has a weird obsession with buying and trading basketball cards. Oh, he's incredible. He's like one of the top five, you know, basketball traders in the world, wow. card traders. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. My guests today have been Sean Linehan, uh, JD Ross. Follow them on Twitter. Uh, check out placement at placement.com and, uh, stay tuned for uh, JD Ross's next thing. Maybe we'll come back on the, on the podcast. Guys, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful episode. Thanks, Eric. It's been fun. Thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.